All right. Do I have to accept this or something? Yeah. Got it. Here we go. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode three of the Facility Talk podcast powered by Bimo Elite Athletics. Today, we have a special guest, co-founder of Bimo Elite Athletics, 13-year MLB veteran, uh, immaculate grid legend, Bloody Mary connoisseur, Mr. Joe Bimo. Joe, how are we doing today? Great, man. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing good. You know, just got out a long day of practice. We were there yeah. for about five hours, so it was a real fun day. <laughs> so yeah, that happens, man. I, I was actually supposed to have a velo day today, mm-hmm. um, and I think I have to bang it because it's going to be too late, so I won't be able to get it in, but probably have to shoot for that tomorrow. Yeah. Now that we had a actually had a bullpen today at the end of practice, so we, we got there, did all our throwing, and then sat for like an hour and a half while we did like team defense and stuff like that, and then got our bullpen in at the end, so... But yeah, that sounds about right. That's how you got to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, happened to throw like the best bullpen I've thrown since being here, though. So that was that. Well, was there you go. There yeah. you go. You might have to do that more often then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, we're just going to run through some questions that some guys from social media have asked me, as well as some teammates, and we're going to take it back to your playing career. So the first question we have is, when you were going, like, how long did it take you to go through the minor leagues and eventually debut in MLB? And how did you shift your mentality through that time? Like, what adjustments did you have to make? All right. So I was drafted in 1998, signed uh, with the Pirates uh, when I got drafted out of Duquesne University. But, um, you know, one one thing for me was I, I went into short season in 1998. Uh, I was always, my first two years in pro ball, bouncing back and forth from starter to reliever. Um kind of always found I had better numbers as a reliever. Um, but then in 2000, they made me a full-time starter. So I started the year out in in high A. Uh, I was in low A the year before in Hickory, North Carolina. Went to high A in Lynchburg, Virginia in 2000. Had a really good year. Uh, halfway through the year, they called me up to double A. I went there Struggled a little bit the first couple outings, but then finished finished the uh, season really well. And I've I've actually told this story in the last couple of days um, because when I that year uh, I was just talking to a guy he the, he was in an organization that m- made him stop throwing his slider because they wanted him to throw something else. So his slider is basically his best pitch. And they took it away for the season because they're like, we want you to start throwing a cutter and we want you to use your change up more. Uh, well, that happened to me in 2000. So my slider was kind of my out pitch. They wanted me to throw a curveball. So they said, you can't throw sliders anymore. So I was getting away with it in high A. I go to double A. Hitters are better. My curveball is completely terrible. Uh, so I don't really have an out pitch. So they go, all right, well, we're going to let you throw your slider again. And, well, I haven't thrown it all year. So gradually it started to come back. The last game that I pitched in that year in double A, um, I, I ended up uh, striking out like the first 11 of 12 batters I faced. It just so happened to be a game where uh, the GM was there and all the brass was there in the front office. So I pitched really well. They put me on the 40-man that offseason. And then basically, because of that great game, I had a 
good opportunity to make the team out of spring training the next year, my first year in big league camp made the team out of spring training. Um, but uh, you know, I was, I was talking to this athlete and I said, if they would have not told me I could throw my slider, maybe that doesn't happen, you know? Mm -hmm. So you see all these different factors that come into play when you are in the minor leagues, because in the big leagues, no one's going to tell you, Hey, don't throw your best pitch, right? Your, your job right. is to get guys out, help the team win. Um, but sometimes that happens in the minor leagues and, um, going back to, you know, the mindset and things like that. Uh, you know, you have all these different hurdles when you're in the minor leagues, you're not making a lot of money, you're in bad living situations. Uh, you know, the staff maybe isn't giving you the best opportunity to be successful. So you really have to rely on yourself, on your routine, on your training, uh, because you just, you never know if you're, if you're relying on somebody else to get that help and try and push you forward, it's just, it's not going to happen. And you hear it all the time. Nobody's coming to save you. You know, you have to have that mindset, put in the work and, really just have fun and be positive with everything. And I was very fortunate that I had people in the front office that liked me. Um, I kind of got pushed along pretty quickly and made it to the big leagues and was able to make my debut within you know, like two and a half years. Nice. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, you said that they made, like they told you, you have to make this adjustment. And I've heard a lot of stories about that happens a lot. Like I, the one that comes off the top of my head is, I believe it was forgot the organization and the dude, but he was a big name first round pick out of Vanderbilt. And they saw him do like his, his throwing routine, which was foul pole to foul pole, long toss. He would do it like three times a week. And they like freaked out that he was doing that because they want to protect like, you know, their investment in like how much money they gave him. And they made him like completely stop doing that. And his velo just went down like completely. And he struggled yeah. to work his way through because they didn't let him do what he was accustomed to. So. Yeah, I mean, sometimes if you have a routine and it works for you, it's a lot of those. A lot of that it becomes a mental thing, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, you might feel like it's affecting your performance, and sometimes it probably does. Uh, but the thing with routines is it gets you mentally prepared to play and be successful. And usually if you've had some success, you have a good routine that you follow. And when someone kind of throws a wrench in that and they don't let you do it, um, mm -hmm. that's where you have to be able to kind of step back and you have to be able to make adjustments. But at the end of the day, it is your career, you know? So um, I played with a lot of guys who they, they took that advice from a coach or an organization um, and they thought, well, this is going to make me better. And then when it didn't, you know, they kind of didn't have the balls to go like, Hey, this isn't working. Like I'm going mm -hmm. back to whatever I'm doing. Like, I don't right. care what you say. This is my career. At the end of the day, if I'm not performing, you're going to release me anyways. So, you know, it is kind of a fine line. Um, but you do have to kind of take your career into your own hands. And if something doesn't feel right to yourself, it probably isn't right. Uh, so I would rather go down fighting and believing in myself and what I'm doing yeah. than allow, allow somebody else to tell me like, Hey, you have to do this. You can't do this. Um, and then when I'm not successful, 
you know, try to blame it on someone other than myself. Right. Yeah. Like that accountability factor where it's like, Hey, if I'm going to do this, I want to go at it and do it my way. So that's cool. But, um, so next question I got, this is actually from one of my teammates because he's been struggling with some stuff like struggling with his outings and stuff. And Mm -hmm. his question was as a, like, obviously as a professional pitcher, you're going to deal with a lot of adversity and a lot of failure at times. So he wanted to know, what did you find that helped you work through those adversities? Did you find like a, a mental thing, a physical thing that helped you get back on track when maybe you were struggling and you were struggling with command, um, getting hit around, anything like that? Yeah. So for myself, uh, there are really two things I always rely on. And I kind of touched on one just a little bit ago, my routine. Mm. So I have a morning routine. I have a pregame routine. I have a uh, an in-game routine. So basically my morning routine prepares me every single day, physically and mentally to, you know, do what I have to do that day. Um, whether I was playing and it was on the field or, you know, with work and being able to handle the stresses of owning a business and things like that. Uh, my pre-game routine kind of prepared me physically to be able, you know, I'm doing my plyo throws, I'm doing my band work, hip and core, um, all of these different things that prepared me physically to get ready, you know, to play that day. And then my in-game routine was basically pretty much mentally where I would, you know, prepare my mind, prepare my focus, um, then kind of visualize going through some hitters that are on the team that I'm playing. So two lefties, two righties, I go through all my pitches, just kind of visualizing, um, what I'm going to do, swings and misses, strikes, you know, all of that. Uh, and I really felt like that prepared me every single day to be successful. Now, the second thing I would say is not focusing on the result because as you know, there's a lot of times, and I've talked about this before, but there's a lot of times you pitch terrible, right? You give up three line drives right at somebody. <laughs> yeah. They're the hardest balls you've ever seen hit. And a guy catches them and you come off the field and everybody goes, Oh yeah, yeah. You get three outs, you know, three up, three down, just freaking three piss rods at somebody. And they're just like, yeah, good job. Good job. And if you look at that and you go like, Oh yeah, I got three outs. Like that's pretty cool. I threw a scoreless inning. That's awesome. And you don't take into account and look and go like, oh, man, I didn't really throw very well. So (laughs) if I do that nine out of ten times, I'm going to get my brains beat in every day. Right. And on the flip side of that, you know, you give up a, you know, broken bat over the shortstop's head or uh, you walk a guy on a pitch that was probably a strike or, you know, a ball just goes down the line, lands right on the line. Mm-hmm. and you get a little unlucky and you come in and you give up a couple runs and you go, oh, man, man, that was terrible. You know, I got to, like, clean it up. I got to be better. Well, chances are if you pitch like you did that day nine more times, you're going to be super successful. So one of the things I never do is completely focus on the result. I, can, I look at the process, what I've done. I know with my routine. I know with the training that I've done. When the game comes, I'm going to go out there, believe in myself. I'm going to have fun. 
And that's what all of this stuff does, right? It builds your confidence. So you, you have a routine, you train hard, you work hard. The game is supposed to be fun. So you go out there, you know, let the chips fall where they may. You believe in yourself and you, you know, hey, I got my butt kicked today, but whatever. I'll probably go 30 scoreless innings in a row now. Uh, that was kind of all always the mentality that I had while I was playing. And it's amazing what you will find when you do believe that believe and you think like that, because you can talk yourself into a lot of stuff. I was a guy I threw 88 to 91 for a lot of my career. Um, you know, I threw a little harder when I was younger, um, about 88 to 91 through my through my 30s. Uh, started training people in my forties and was able to get up to 95 at 44, but you know, I wasn't necessarily a really hard thrower in the middle of my career. And I really relied on my, on my mentality and, you know, mental strength. That was, mm -hmm. that was always my strength. Um, so if you are struggling a little in those areas, yeah, you might be able to tweak your mechanics and you might find something that makes you better. But usually what those things do is if you find something mechanically, it builds up your confidence to go like, Hey, this feels good. You know, yeah. I, I'm, I believe I can get guys out now because even for myself, I started doing a little turn at the top of my delivery and I was like, Oh, that feels good. Like, I really like that. And then all of a sudden I'm going out and I'm using it and I'm getting guys out. Um, so I really feel like having that mentality that you're just, the best player on the field and mm -hmm. maybe you're not, but you can absolutely talk yourself into it and believe in it. Uh, and then you start believing it and then your teammates are believing it and everyone around you believes that. So it's very contagious. Um, but that would be, that would be my answer to that is just really believing in yourself, having routines um, and then just not focusing so much on the result all the time. Right. And a little bit of a fake, fake it till you make it. If you will, yeah, absolutely. Thing. Yeah. I mean, I literally two weeks ago, that's like a similar thing happened to me where I had the worst outing I've had in the last two years. Like I threw, I could not get in the zone. It was the first inner squad of our fall. I was all over the place wild. And then afterwards I got a catcher coming up to me. He's like, Hey, you're doing this wrong. A pitching coach comes up to me. Hey, you're doing this wrong. And then I was like, Hey, like, let me just pump the brakes. Like, let's just, it's the yeah. first outing. Like, let me just, I don't want to think about it too much. We'll get back on track. And then the next outing, I was back to what I was before, which is in the zone, just pounding the zone. I gave up a, like I gave up a run, but it was on, like you said, like those dink hits. It was like a blooper over the first baseman on a slider, followed by a changeup to a lefty that he looped over the shortstop's head. So, and I wasn't disappointed with that because I was like, okay, I was making good pitches and I was attacking the zone, which is really all you can ask for as a pitcher is getting attacking hitters, you know, playing offense yeah. on defense, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for yourself, it could have been if you didn't have that mentality and you weren't like, oh, hey, wait, wait a second, let's hold up. It could have snowballed on you to where mm -hmm. now, you know, three, four outings in, you're just completely lost and you think you're the worst pitcher on the planet because, you know, a bunch of people came up to you and said, oh, you got to do this, you got to do that. So it's always good to have that mentality and realize you're always one pitch away from getting back on track. You know, say mm -hmm. you have a couple guys get a hit. Now you got guys first and second, no outs or first and second, one out. And you're 
all you need, you're one pitch away. You can get a ground ball. You can turn a double play. You get out of that inning, and then it's like, yes, yeah. I'm not, I'm the best pitcher alive. <laughs> yeah, know? I mean, Aroldis Chapman the other night in the Rangers-Orioles game, he walked the first two batters on nine pitches and then got out of it with a zero in the eighth inning in a one-run ball game. So, yeah, that yeah. happens. You just got to get back on track with one pitch. That's all it takes. Without but, a doubt. Yeah. So – I think you are you already talked about like going through your mental processes when you're in a game. But one of the next questions they had was if you were in the bullpen and you're relieving, would you stay locked in the entire game or would you turn it on when you started to warm like get moving, warming up? Because it's a long season and I'm sure it takes a mental drain on you, you know, 162 games a year. So uh what what did your like warm-up process look like? Were you, were you dialed in the second you got to the field, or would it take you a few innings to actually get going on that? Um, absolutely not dialed in from the time I got to the field or even when I went to the bullpen. So a lot of it is knowing what your role is, right? So if mm-hmm. you're you're gonna be a late inning guy or there's a possibility that you could come in in the first inning or second inning if the starter gets in trouble. Uh, those are two different things and you would prepare completely differently for those. Um, like you said, it is a mental toll. It is a mental grind because, uh, especially in the big leagues, you're playing 162 games and you literally have to be ready as a reliever for all 162. Unless you pitch like for myself, I wouldn't throw, uh, unless we were fighting for a playoff spot down the stretch, I wouldn't pitch in more than three, three days in a row. Um, I ended up finding out the hard way in my career. I think I, there was a point in 2003 where I threw in, I think, seven games in a row. Um, and then my season just went like that. And I just, mm-hmm. I was a younger player. So I let the manager kind of, I wasn't going to ask for a day off. I was too tough, you know, like <laughs> I'm going to pitch, I'm going to pitch every day. Yeah. E- and, ego, ego you know, throwing. Exactly. And I let the manager kind of abuse me a little bit. And then just, I couldn't, I was so fatigued after that. I, it took me forever to kind of get back to where I was. Mm -hmm. Um, but my, my routine that I talked about a little bit before I would do that usually, and it was all depending on if we were at home or we were on the road, if I would do it in the top or the bottom of the fifth, I think, I think it was, on the road, I would actually start my routine in the bottom of the fourth. And then at home, I would start it in the top of the fifth. So I would kind of go through everything. But I knew what my role was. I wasn't going to come in before that. Um, you know, if you're trying to like, as soon as you walk in the doors, uh, you're trying to get locked in for the day and you're, you know, you're starting to mentally prepare. You can do that as a starter. Uh, because you know you're only pitching once every five days and you are starting the game mm-hmm. uh, but for myself if I would have tried to do that mentally I would have been fit, like mentally freaking fatigued uh, after the first month or two so I always like to kind of go down to the bullpen a little later uh, maybe an inning or two when I was in the big leagues like I said if I knew I had a chance to pitch early then I was down there when the game started um some organizations as well they they want all the relievers down there you know at a certain time so i would do that if that was one of the rules on the team but you know i try to really just relax let myself mentally relax um go down joke around with the guys 
for the first few innings. But once I got that routine in, it was like kind of all business for me. I was locked in. It was just a routine that got me locked in. And then all of the joking and all that stuff was kind of put on the back burner. Not to say I was like trying to be a hard ass or anything. And like, I wouldn't talk to anybody, but um, I really started to focus on the game, started to focus on the pace of the game and when I could possibly get in looking at the lineup. All right. This lefty's coming up second, this inning I'll start like, you know, this could be, if he gets in trouble here, uh, it'll be an opportunity for me to come in. So I usually let the game dictate a lot of things, but like I said, after that fourth or fifth inning, it was, it was go time for me. Yeah. I mean, uh, for like the role, like the importance of knowing your role, I, I touched on it in a previous video a long time ago, but um, one of the things I've really liked about our coach is my first year here, um, we had a different pitching coach who was running like who would go into the game and win. And we never knew what role we were fit into as a reliever. So it was like, hey, like you're in the in, you're in the dugout first inning, starters are struggling. He would just call somebody that he would pick. They go down to the bullpen, get hot. And everyone yeah. was terrible out of the bullpen because we didn't have we couldn't figure out like where we were gonna fit into the game. And then this past year, what he did is every every game, all the pitchers that were active, he would have like a list. It'd be in the dugout. It'd be like starter, and then it would have all the roles. So it'd be like early relief. So it can be in the first inning. It could be in the fifth inning. And it would be a list of guys that could potentially go in in that situation. And then it was like like setup guy. Um, we had late inning arms and then like closer and everybody knew what their role was. So there'd be different guys in the bullpen for like the first five innings in the game. And then they would come back down to the dugout because they knew, all right, we're not going to throw today because situation hasn't called for it. And then the late inning guys would go down there. And that's usually when I would go down there because I'd throw in like the seventh, eighth and ninth. Um, and then we would do our work, get locked in. And then if we had to go into the game, we'd go into the game. And it we saw a lot of really good success with that. So getting that set routine is super important, especially especially coming out of the bullpen. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And I've played for some different managers over the years, so not at the big league level, but you know, in the minor leagues. Uh, played for some organizations where they're like, hey, there are no roles in the bullpen. You can pitch at any point. The only Sometimes they'd have a closer and he'd have the only role. And that's just... It's it's so hard to do that because, especially at the pro season, the the seasons are so long that if you're trying to like be locked in in the bullpen, I'm not talking about a position player. You're locked in the whole game and you're locked in and you're at bats. Um, there's a lot of downtime, obvi uh, obviously in the in the field, um, and you don't have to be locked in in between pitches. But once the ball is thrown, you have to like be ready in case the ball comes to you. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to get locked in in the first inning all the way through the ninth, and then the next day, same thing. It's just, it's so long and it's such a mental grind. You know, it mm -hmm. it really takes a toll on you through, through the course of that season. Um, so even having something like that, and I've been on teams as well in the minor leagues that have that where uh, they put a sheet up and like, hey, you're available this inning, this inning. These guys are going to be late. Um, but for the most part, if you have that same role that you know all season, uh, you can prepare, get ready, and then you're going to – I feel like you're just going to have the most success when, that, when that's the case. 
Yeah. You're just preparing guys for success. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So next question, we're going to shift the focus a little bit more towards the training aspect of things. Um, And one of the questions that we got or I got was if you like, what advice would you give to somebody that is stuck in like a VLO plateau where, you know, for the last like year, year and a half, they've been consistently topping at like the same velocity and they just can't seem to get over the hump and get to that next benchmark. Um, well, two things. First of all, a lot of guys don't have the genetic ceiling to be able to throw as hard as they want to throw. Right? It's just mm-hmm. the simple facts, you know, and that's not to say you shouldn't keep trying, right? You can still try and uh, do these things, but not everybody has the genetics to throw 95. Not everybody has the genetics to throw 90. We can do all kinds of different training uh, to try and get you there. Um, but sometimes that is, that's an issue. All right. Uh, I don't like to hear that. You know, I feel like there's always something we can do to help. And what I would say more often is, um, I think we've got to start looking in those guys specifically, we've got to start looking biomechanically what they're doing and compare in comparison to what they're doing in their strength training. Right. So if you have a guy, he's a post posterior chain guy, um, you know, he sits into that back leg, uh, butt kind of goes behind his heels. Well, we need to start training that in the weight room. So it's a little more sports specific, but it's individual to his biomechanics. So for, for that guy doing an ass to grass squat is not going to help him on the mound. So you can start squatting 500 pounds and it doesn't mean you're going to throw harder and break through that plateau. The way we're going to do this is we're going to figure out, we got to start looking at little tiny things. So, you know, you get, you get a player who's say 75 miles an hour and you put them through a regular strength program. That guy is probably just going to get better by being stronger. And he's going to get better to a certain point. He might get up to 90, he might get up to 92, but now he wants to throw 95. Well, just continuing to get stronger is not going to help this guy anymore. He's kind of at that upper echelon level. So now we got to start looking at these little things um, in his training, in his arm care, with his biomechanics, and it's all got to match up and be in one on one thing. You know, so like I said, you you might be putting him uh, in a situation, or you you kind of look at his. Uh, say where he gets into foot plant, all right, and say he has uh, a different angle on his leg, his front leg, uh, his knee flexion into foot plant is, say, a certain degree. Well, now when we train, we want to recreate that angle on these legs so he's he's strong in that position. It doesn't matter if he's strong when he goes all the way down into a different position or his knees over his ankle you know, and say a Bulgarian split squat or something. Now we want to recreate what he does in his delivery on the mound so he can be strong in that position and give him the best opportunity to break through that plateau. Um, And then I would just say with arm care as well, making sure you have, you know, a lot of, a lot of different arm care programs that are training, you know, with your, you've got your five pound cuff weights, 
Um, and they're, they're training more of an endurance on arm core on arm care rather than a max strength in arm care. So, I mean, as you know, we use the arm care app and we use the dynamometer. Uh, we've had a, guys with a lot of success using that, but you want to create a program where you're creating max strength for your arm care. Um, and then the throwing is what's going to create your endurance, mm. you know, doing, doing little wrist weights and shit like that isn't really going to help you. Uh, it's not going to make you strong enough to be able to throw hard. And, you know, with using the dynamometer, we know we can see those, those metrics and try and solve those problems. So I think when you do see someone in a plateau and it, when we talk about a plateau, if it's like a year long plateau, um, that's where we need to really start making those minor adjustments. Um, and that starts, you know, not only mechanically, but in the weight room and everything needs, it, it becomes more of a strength and coordination thing than a strength and conditioning. We get out of the patterns of strength and conditioning where, you know, we're trying to have perfect form in the weight room mm -hmm. and we get more into that sport specific training. Right. That, um, that plays a big part in the genetics because, you know, as you're growing up and you're growing into your body, you're going to develop like these like physical adaptations to like, you know, like joint, like your mobility, joint mobility, all that stuff. So, you know, you could see like, all right, get, these guys are getting into these really deep positions, but you know, your entire life you've been doing a certain thing a certain way. So your body has adapted its way to move that way. And you, yeah. you can't just be like, oh, I want to train it completely different. Cause then it'll be like, well, hold on, let's pop we're freaking out. You know, like the body's a machine if you've been tuning it to perf like move a certain way for your entire life, completely like just destroying it, knocking it down by trying to do something that you know, no idea how to do or your body's not familiar with, it's just going to do a lot of damage to you. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely correct. It's you build up movement preferences, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're playing baseball, you're throwing a baseball since you're four years old. Uh, you start to develop these, your body develops these movement preferences that you want to be in. And if you completely try to change that, say you break your knee forward and the, you know, the ball kind of goes behind your body, uh, and you're throwing, you know, 90, 95, then all of a sudden someone says, well, you know, I think you need to sit into your back leg. Now you start working on that. You're sitting into your back leg and you're, um, all of a sudden you start throwing 86. I mean, you'll throw 86 real quick because your body doesn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So you have to train, you basically have to train your movement preference. And I'm not talking about, you know, a 12 year old, 13 year old. A lot of those guys can make um, those different kind of movement patterns and they can make those adjustments. And, um, but once you're an older player and you kind of get into these patterns that your body does and that it wants to do, uh, it's hard to get out of those to say like, Oh, I'm going to, I want to throw a hundred. Um, so like I said, you got to take more of that strength and coordination approach and start working yourself into those movements and have those movements, you know, mimic or mirror what you're doing in your strength training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things I've actually, I've gotten into it, not gotten into it, but I've had discussions with our strength coach about, and it's reg regarding like arm care and stuff. Whenever we go to lift, 
he wants to treat us like we're fragile and mm-hmm. like he's like oh i don't want you to go too heavy like if we're doing an overhead movement don't go too heavy and it's like you know the amount of load that's on your shoulder and all your joints when you're doing a throw is 10 times harder than any lift you'd be able to do overhead so yeah you need to like the right now so one of uh one of the guys i've been talking to i'm gonna try to get him on on this podcast actually uh, he's a pro guy. He's in the minor leagues. And his big thing is he's like, you, you can't be fragile. You can't train yourself to be fragile. So like doing like, you know, like, yay, like J bands, I think it's a great tool for warming up. But if you're trying to build strength with that, you know, you're not going to get the maximum benefit out of that because it's a super lightweight. You know, you should be doing exercises that are challenging and that are actually helping you strengthen like your rotator cuff, you know, all the muscles around your shoulder, your elbow. Um, your arm shouldn't be something that you treat delicately. You want to build up those, like that resistance to that high, like high output, if you will. Yeah. The, the force that you're putting on your, in your arm, um, say you're the, the units of load that you're putting on your shoulder in say a hundred pitch game is so much heavier than, and so much more force than you would you could ever do doing five pound weights or doing like mm. some light arm care uh so you shouldn't train you know you could do thou- a thousand reps and it would still be way less weight and force in your shoulder and that's what i was talking about with with endurance that's more of endurance exercises we want more max strength in our arm care and even with the warm-up we call it a warm-up but it's really you're creating strength you know, mm-hmm. you're getting ready to pitch. You're getting some potentiation in there uh, to help you throw. But you are, it is a strength exercise. And that's what you're, we're trying to create with our with our arm care. And I know you got into um, doing handstands and stuff like that, which are phenomenal for your shoulder because essentially you're putting, you know, if you weigh 200 pounds, your whole body's on your shoulders. And you're conditioning your shoulder to be able to handle that weight that force mm-hmm. when it's up here you know I, I think for a lot of years and um you know i did this when i was a younger player they say you never wanted to go above your shoulder when you're doing like all these exercises it's like well why not you throw from up here you don't you know <laughs> your arm's not down here yeah so you know i think the handstands and stuff like that are perfect because that's going to be more weight than you can lift above your head because you have, say you weigh 200 pounds, you've got 200 pounds of force on and gravity pulling you down mm-hmm. on your, on your hands and shoulders. Um, so I think that's a really big thing also with arm care because you are conditioning yourself to be able to handle those loads, handle those stresses. And like you said, if you're just kind of baby in your arm, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to be beneficial for you. You're, you're going to end up getting hurt. And uh, I see the thing and like bionic arm thing. I don't know if you've seen this thing. It's supposed to take like it's a the kinetic sleeve. Arm. The kinetic yeah. arm. Yeah. 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 And it takes the stress off your um, off your UCL or your elbow. And, you know, I never want to talk bad about somebody's product. They're putting something out that they're trying to help with injuries and things like that. But the way I think about it is if I throw every day and I have no stress on my arm, what is my arm going to do when I actually put stress in it? I mean, I can't mm-hmm. even wear this thing when I pitch in a game. Right. So now what's going to happen is I'm going to be letting it eat. Um, 
putting even more stress on my arm because I'm throwing at a high velocity and throwing at a high effort. Like your arm's just going to be like, Oh, Whoa, we it's, I'm not used to this. So, you know, that's when you're going to have injuries. So I think stressing the arm, um, and doing it smartly, you know, you, you know, being education, being educated about it. Uh, you, you don't want to just start ripping <laughs> two, two pound plyo balls every day as hard as you can, you know, that, yeah. uh, you do have to have to be smart uh, about your training, but you do have to provide a stimulus of stress or you're never going to have, you're never going to throw harder. Um, and you'll probably end up with an injury. Yeah. I mean, um, speaking of like putting stress on the arm and why it's a good thing, uh, I think we had this conversation. It was a long time ago and it was when I was coming back from my arm injury and I, they gave me like a little brace to wear cause I had a UCL sprain and that, and you were talking to me about it and you're like, dude, don't wear that all the time. Like wear yeah. that when you're like moving around and doing stuff. But if not, you want to take that off because you want your arm to regain like the range of motion as well as get used to just like the little stresses, obviously not in like a crazy load right off the bat. Cause you're coming off an injury, but you still, you got to be able to take it to the full range of motion eventually and allow it to adapt to the stresses. Yeah. Your body will make adjustments very quickly. So if you just sit here like this all the time, you're not, I mean, you're, all of a sudden you're not going to be able to do this, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's kind of what the braces do. And that's, I don't, I don't really like braces for anything, but you know, I had Tommy John at 35 years old. Um, and even with that, they didn't want me wearing the brace. They really just said, Hey, if you're out in like public or something, or you're in a crowd and there's a possibility somebody could bump into you or hit your arm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we don't want to put, valgus stress on there uh right away so that made sense but anytime i was at home and just sitting there you know the first thing you got to do is start moving because you're gonna get if you lose range of motion um that's not good uh but also you know i've been to very few pts where they go uh you're coming back from an injury and the first thing they look at is range of motion oh hey you have your full range of motion, you can start throwing again. And it's like, well, what if my arm is too weak to throw? Like, why aren't we mm-hmm. looking at my arm strength? You know, why aren't we testing that first? That seems to be a way more important thing than just simple range of motion. So I think there's, you know, a big thing, obviously, with range of motion. But a lot of times, um, I think, you know, I'm of the mindset of strength matters most. So, um, uh, you know, if my shoulder and um, everything else is strong, range of motion after that is second. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, speaking of strength in the arm, I just wanted to you know toot my own horn again. I know I had a, I told you I had a bullpen today, but I PR'd on my arm primer today. I got eighty-seven on XL Jeez. and D cell still, still is low <laughs> i can't i'm hitting like i hit a little bit of a wall right now i'm at like the 50 mark going backwards so it's completely out of balance but i mean still but yeah the primer's a little different than you know say an arm care exam so mm-hmm. you know between er and ir that that ratio uh but 50 in the d cell and primer is still phenomenal that's yeah that's actually really good Shit, yeah. i've never <laughs> 
I've never even come close to those numbers. So yeah, no, I was getting, I've been getting pretty solid. Golf clap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. uh yeah, my teammates always give me crap about it. They're like, oh, that looks they're like that looks dumb. And I always go, because you know, they have like the strength tester on the app. And I always yeah. take it off. I'm like, you want to give it a try? And they're like, okay. Yeah. And they get like like a 12, like a 13 going backwards. Oh like, my god. They're like, what did you get? And I was like, uh, today I got a 48. <laughs> and they're like, oh, okay. Wow. So yeah, no, it's good stuff. But um, all just last thing for arm care. Um, what when you were playing, and obviously even after you're playing, because you know you were getting up to 95 at 44 years old. Um, what were you doing like post throw for recovery, strength, uh, nutrition, stuff like that? Like what what was your post throw or post pitch routine? What did it look like? Um, so. If I was, if we're talking about like in the, like when I played recently, like 2021, so I would actually do an arm care exam, a uh, post exam, um, for a lot of different reasons. But, you know, we're learning a lot of things about isometric holds, uh, really good for you after you throw. You know, if you look at like, say, a biomechanics report and, uh, you know, you got, Peak leg lift, right, is number one. I know you've seen it on, say, like pitch AI and stuff right. that we have. But, um, you know, the first thing is peak leg lift, and then you go into foot plan, and then it's max external rotation, and then ball release. Those are kind of the four big ones. And then some biomechanics reports go, like, maximum internal rotation after you deliver the ball. Um, but if we look at that max external rotation, right, so you're – you're in max ER. Um, if you look on the chart, you know, your external rotation kind of goes like this. It goes up, starts to peak. It gets to max external rotation at the very top of that graph. Well, it doesn't just touch there and come down, right? So it goes up, goes to max ER. It kind of stays there for a little bit, and then it flattens out and then starts to come down. And, you know, so you're actually in max ER for – a little bit you know you're there for a few clicks as you start to rotate so we know in that position to be able to crank the catapult back and be able to hold that we need that's an isometric move right we need isometric strength in that position so one of the things with the arm care um, with the the exams is you're getting those isometric holds and maybe not enough um, but I found doing those, doing an doing isometrics after I have like a high intent throwing day are super beneficial, not only for mm. feeling good the next day and be able, you know, as a pro guy, being able to come in the next day as well. And maybe the next day after that, um, you have to be able to feel good. You feel like crap. You're pr probably not going to perform well. Um, so adding that kind of stuff and not just max, you know, not just, ER isometrics, but also IR isometrics. Um, those were something I'd say over the last few years that I was that I implemented um, when I would throw or have a high intent day or pitch in a game. Uh, when I was younger, nobody nobody cared about that shit. You know, <laughs> nobody nobody knew. Crack open so a few. Just, crack open a few brewskis afterwards too. well that too you know still do that but um you know three three everything was three pound weights get your job yeah. exercises in um so that's what i did um 
you know, my younger years, but now that I've been training guys for a while and you learn, you know, you just keep learning and learn all of these things uh, to try and, you know, make the athletes better and then you start implementing it into your own systems and you're like, oh, wow. And that's kind of how it happened with myself being able to come back at 44 was I started implementing all of these different things. And the next thing I know, I'm like throwing harder than I did at any point in my 30s. Um, I know one of the big things was when I was younger was icing, right? If you threw, you had to ice. Um, now we've learned, you know, your body creates an inflammatory response uh, after you pitch, after you lift, after you do certain things. You don't necessarily want to stop that. So you don't want to slow that down with ice and restrict that. Um, with that being said, I take ice baths every single morning, um, but I either do it in the morning um, where the ice is good for, for inflammation. It's great. It stops mm -hmm. it. That's, that's why it's a good thing. But there are certain times where inflammation isn't bad. And one of those is right after you do something. So, you know, if you're to lift weights and then jump in an ice bath, well, you're probably just going to stay a little guy. You know, you're not going to get any bigger. <laughs> You're not really going to get any stronger because your blood isn't going to get, you know, the or your muscles aren't going to get the blood, the growth factors like um, growth hormone, testosterone, the calories that you're eating aren't going to be able to go into those muscles to help them because you're constricting that blood flow. So um, there's a time and place where that's a good thing, um, you know, and even if I... I'm not totally against icing your arm, but I would not do it after you throw. I'd do it maybe three or four hours, you know, after you're done. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's bad. And um, jumping in an ice bath is just phenomenal for your body as well. Yeah, cold therapy. Because, yeah. uh, you know, speaking of cold therapy, I got to show you this. It's a new toy that one of my teammates, he hooked up for me. So um, one of his buddies started doing these. They're like fascia sticks. I don't know if you've seen these before. I just saw it recently. Yeah, I, I was. He got them today. We we're using them, and they have yeah. like a metal one. And he's been sending it to like pro guys and stuff like that. Like one of his buddies. Yeah. And uh, he was like, "Yeah, they they said he made the metal one because a lot of them like to like freeze it, and then like in the mornings they like do like all the flossing and everything like that. So mm -hmm. I'm gonna be testing this out over the next week or so and see how that goes. But uh, so yes. Yeah. So one of the, I think it was a guy here in LA, one of our performance coaches here, uh, Ray Diaz. I think he had one of those. And mm -hmm. I kind of laughed because last year I posted a video. Um, I had was having issues on my non-throwing side. So my pec was like super tight in here. And I get like a lacrosse ball on there and it just wasn't getting in there deep enough. So the one day I was in the shower and I saw like my wife's razor sitting there <laughs> and i took i was like man that looks like i could get that in there like the handle yeah. of the razor you know so i took the razor blade off and i grabbed the handle and very similar to what you have there and i was just like digging around i'm like oh my gosh this thing's a game changer yeah. so then i ended up i ended up bringing a bunch of razor handles into the facility in el paso because i was like dude i've never seen anyone have this or do this mm -hmm. um so then when that came out i was like oh that that actually looks a lot better that Looks like you can get in there, and uh, I'd, I'd be anxious to try that out as well. 
Yeah, I want to I want to get in touch. I was going to go through my friend, get in touch with the guy and see if we can get some for the facilities, because I, I was using it today before our practice. And like I was like my collarbones. I had an upper body lift this morning, um, but like my my collarbone was pretty tight, like right here, like that little yeah. groove right under there. And I was like, perfect. Look at that. It gets right in there. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll de- yeah definitely going to be giving these a try. But um, last like serious question that we have is. Uh, why did you start by Molite Athletics? A uh, couple different reasons. First reason, I went and trained uh, in 2016. So I, I played with the Mariners 2015. Um, felt like I had a pretty decent year, but I went in that next year. I was 39 years old, was having a real hard time of somebody signing me. So I wasn't getting signed. Uh, spring training starts. I still wasn't signed. I was like, all right, maybe I just need to throw harder. Uh, you know, I was, I think 2015, I probably averaged somewhere around like 88 miles an hour, but you know, I threw a lot of sinkers too, where I'd throw them at like 83, 84. I take some off. Um, I wasn't, you know, max in 10 every pitch by any means. So, um, you know, anytime I threw a four seamer, it was usually 88 to 91, 92, maybe. Um, so I thought, well, maybe I just need to throw harder. So I ended up going to drive line. Drive line wasn't, you know, what it what it is right now or what it is today. Uh, it was just kind of starting to get known a little bit. And I think when I went up there, I was kind of the one of the first established big leaders to go up there and train. But I thought, hey, I got to try something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I went up there, obviously a lot of things that I liked about training there, um, and a lot of things that I thought could be better or that I didn't necessarily, necessarily like, um, you know, and the warm up routine they did and wrist weights and things like that. I was trying to do that in season and I just found it was like impossible to keep up with that stuff. Uh, it was getting it was one of those things where I wish I would have had a dynamometer because I would have <laughs> went through my went through my warm up and then tested. Like if your warm ups freaking making you tired, well you're it's not a warm up anymore. You're you're doing too much. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I saw a lot. Like I said, a lot of things I liked, a lot of things I didn't like, and I was like, yeah, I kind of want to start a facility to help guys out and see if I can make these things better. Um, and then another thing was just, uh, you know, I got done playing, retired the first time at 40 years old. And, you know, I had known Brent for a couple of years. He was always catching me in the off season. Um, for him, I watched him, you know, he would drive down to Long Beach uh, to do his strength training. Then he'd drive up to UCLA to do some catching or, you know, hit with guys. Uh, from there, he'd drive over to like Palos Verdes or Torrance, and then he'd catch me and we'd long toss. And then he would go coach, like uh, do some lessons or coach a high school team. And I sat there and I was like, man, it'd be so much more convenient if you just have everything <laughs> in one spot, you know? Right. So, so I watched him do this and drive all around. Um, and I watched how hard he worked as a player and then never really got the opportunity to play in the big leagues or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, so I knew 
I knew then if I did do anything, he would be the guy that I'd want to partner with to like create this program. Um, and then it was just using the knowledge that I had acquired over 20, you know, 20 years, 21 years now of, of playing professionally. And I didn't just want to hang on to that information. You know, I wanted to create a program, um, kind of give the, the athletes everything that I had learned for like the last 20 years, instead of having to have them go through it and learn those lessons themselves. So I could just go like, here you go. Mm -hmm. Here's, here's what I know right now today. Um, this can help you get better and continued, you know, obviously continued to learn, still learning as we speak. Um, because my, one of our, our big things as a business is if we're doing the same stuff in five years that we were doing five years ago, we're completely failing as coaches um, and we're completely failing the athletes that we're training. So um, we've got to continue to learn, continue to get better, um, hold ourselves accountable for that. But those are basically the main reasons why I wanted to do it. And you know, I find myself in these situations like we were, we were talking about today. Um, one one of our employees here in L.A. Uh, I was chatting with and, you know, there I've just had so many experiences where if someone had Tommy John. I can go like, oh, yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about. I've been through that. Uh, this is how you can get through kind of the ups and downs of rehab and all of these things. Um, if I didn't go through that, I mean what do I know about it? Like I know about somebody who told me, you know, maybe mm -hmm. that, Oh, this is how it is when you go through Tommy John, but I didn't experience it personally. So I wouldn't necessarily have that firsthand knowledge and have that experience. And I think that is super important when you're dealing with athletes, because if you're somebody who has never been in their position and you've never stepped on the field and you've never been at a high level, it's really hard to, just all of a sudden come in and go like, oh, this is the way you're supposed to do it, or this way you're supposed to act, you know, and for whatever reason in baseball, it's like that. But, you know, if you think of any other profession, um, if you got a lawyer that's been a lawyer for 50 years or a heart surgeon for 50 years and some person, because they saw something on the internet or they read a book, they come in and go like, oh no, you shouldn't do that. You should do it this way. They're just going to mm -hmm. go like, what, what are yeah. you talking about? And it's kind of the same in baseball. And, you know, when you get to a high level, you get to the big leagues, these guys want to hear, they want to learn from somebody who's been there, who knows what they're going through. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I didn't want to just like ride off into the sunset and golf every day. I wanted to be able to help those players reach their goals like I was able to. Awesome. Yeah. There, you said there's a little bit of a, a disconnect between guys that never did any like never played anything like that and yeah athletes so we don't want to have that so we're very thankful for that all the guys in el paso and all the guys in la you know we we honestly i i, I was talking about with drew like if it wasn't for bimal like we we have no idea what we'd be doing right now what positions we'd be in anything like that just because it came to el paso you guys opened a facility there and we were able to find a spot where we could develop our skills as athletes as well as grow as people so awesome. Stuff. Well, that's awesome. That's great yeah. to hear because, you yeah. know, that's what we're doing it for. 
Heck yeah. So it yeah, makes it all, cool. when you hear those stories, you know, and you see the guys, and we've had many over the years where, um, you know, you get the guys that come in or girls that come in and they're not necessarily performing very well. We get, you know, I tell story all the time. Uh, when we first started in LA, we had a kid who running, throwing, grunting, pissing, shit in his pants to throw freaking 55 miles an hour, you know? Mm-hmm. And we, I just look at it and I'm like, what are we going to do to like help this guy? I don't, I don't even know. Kid was a really hard worker, showed up every day. He busted his ass. He lifted, he did everything that we asked of him. Um, all of a sudden one day he's doing a pull down and he's hitting 90, you know, that same kid goes on to get a college scholarship and, you know, right now as we speak, he's in Northern California playing baseball on a scholarship because, uh, you know, he put that work in. Mm-hmm. And it's always fun to work with high-level athletes, right? I'm not going to lie to you. Working right. with big leaguers, working with pro guys, working with, you know, high-level college guys like yourself, is it's it's awesome because they get it. They have, um, you know, they can make a change like that. <laughs> they have really high body awareness but there's just something to being able to help someone that no one really put a lot of thought into put a lot of stock into mm-hmm. um not necessarily gifted genetically and to see that person go on to like reach their goal and their dream it just it hits a little different yeah yeah no i'm sure it's very rewarding for you guys when you see that happen so yeah no doubt yeah all right. So last thing we're going to do here, we're going to do just a set of speed round questions. So we're just going to rattle off, I think, yeah, seven questions, just quick answers, just so if people don't know who you are, they get to know you a little bit better about your playing career or anything like that. All right. All right. Sounds All good. Right. Sounds good. So question one, what is your favorite memory from your career? Favorite memory is most likely making it to the playoffs, I would say. Um, with the Dodgers 2008 making it to the NLCS. Um, that's my favorite memory. But then I always have that um, Barry Bonds and Ken Griffey Jr. were like a combined. I think Barry Bonds was one for 16. Ken Griffey Jr. was one for 12. And those were like two of my favorite players as a kid. So I just, I absolutely dominated both of them. Oh, that's a great chip. <laughs> I love it. All right. So what was your favorite stadium to pitch at? Um, man, I loved Wrigley Field. Uh, I love Chicago. Wrigley just had a special, special place in my heart. The atmosphere is phenomenal. The fans were amazing. Um, so I always love going there. Uh, I'd say the nicest stadium to pitch in is probably PNC Park in Pittsburgh. It's just got the best backdrop and um, probably looks the coolest. What about least favorite? Um, so two of them. One you probably will be offended by, but I absolutely could not stand pitching in Milwaukee. <laughs> oh, that hurts me. <laughs> yeah, I just didn't like it. I don't know. It's still the big leagues, you know, so nothing yeah. is bad. <laughs> um, but I also just I could not stand pitching in Boston. And I know, like, you got, I love Wrigley, but hate Boston. It doesn't seem <laughs> like it would be like that. 
but it was more like the mound was flat. You know, the bullpens were, you know, you're, you're standing here and you're throwing like over there. They'd like mess with you. So the bullpens weren't straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also you just have that big freaking wall out there. That's so close. You give, you p- make your pitch down and away to like down and away to a lefty. And he just kind of goes with it and just barely hits. And it goes out there and clicks off that wall. And you're like, Oh my gosh, that's an out everywhere else in the league. So, Right. Those those places uh, were probably my least favorite. Uh, who was the toughest hitter that you faced? Toughest hitter, uh, definitely Tony Gwynn. I mean, he's just he was ridiculous. So uh, you try to make good pitches on him, he hits him anyways. And then I always struggled with Sean Casey as well because he was a lefty. Uh, I usually got most lefties out, but he was just one that just kind of. He kind of dominated me a little bit. <laughs> Just got to tip your cap and move on. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, did you have a teammate or coach that you would go to for advice, kind of like a mentor uh, early in your career and even later in your career? Um, I would say no. You know, I just, I'd always talk to my dad. Um, and my dad would give me the typical old school dad advice, like, oh, yeah give up a bunch of hits he'd be like oh you gotta knock somebody on their ass you know (laughs) you gotta throw it just don't throw it at their head just throw it up by their chin they'll get out of the way um i did have a triple a coach in 2005 he's the one who kind of suggested i make a turn at the top of my delivery to hide the ball a little more and that from that point on my career kind of took off so i always give him credit his name was joe coleman good dude one of the best pitching coaches i had um, and I tried to learn a little bit from every pitching coach. I never took every single thing that somebody said as that's the way it was. Um, you know, I like to filter through uh, the advice that I got and then make my own decisions. And I, you know, I always felt that's you shouldn't listen to everything I say. You should, you know, take what I say, try and learn from it, see if it applies it to you. And then if it doesn't go like, yeah, we're going to cast that off. Nice. What was your favorite walkout song that you had? Well, I had my walkout song was God's Gonna Cut You Down by Johnny Cash. Great, um, great song. Yeah, so I kind of, I in 2007, uh, I wanted it with the Dodgers. So they played it one game, right? And I'm running into the freaking, into the mound and I'm pumped. It's, you know, it's got that. And, uh, uh, it just freaking pumped me up. So I'm running in and I end up throwing a really good game. And then apparently the owners of the Dodgers at the time, they freaking hated it for some reason. <laughs> they're like, they're like, you're never playing that again. Well, they wouldn't let me play it anymore. Um, and then in 2009, I went to the nationals um, and I used that. And then I got traded to the Rockies. Uh, people in Washington loved it. Uh, I kind of got kind of known there for having that as my walkout. And then the people in Colorado loved it as well. And I still, you know, they put me in contests there. They'll have like these online contests where there'll be best walkout song of a Rocky ever. And they usually put me in there um, to see if you know the fans will vote if I win. But um, yeah, that was, that was really my one and only walkout song. 
what was your favorite team that you played on? Man, I have I have a lot of them. I, I would say my favorite is probably the Dodgers. That's where my career kind of took off. You know, mm. I, I established myself as a big leaguer. Uh, the Dodger fans are phenomenal. You know, you're in L.A., uh, great place to be, great place to be a professional athlete. And, you know, I had a lot of success. So, and the organization was just phenomenal, too. Awesome. Uh, who are you rooting for this year to win the World Series? I'm sure you're catching up on some postseason baseball. Man, I haven't really watched. <laughs> like, I, I to be honest, I've been – it's uh, been just one of those years business-wise that we've got a lot going on. So, I haven't watched a ton of baseball. But anytime the playoffs come around, I'm – you know, if one of the teams that I played for are in it, then I root for them. Um, you know, I love the organizations that I was uh, very blessed to play play with. Uh, so right now, I would say the Dodgers. I know they're usually really good, and they have bad luck in the postseason. Um, but I'd like to see them kind of turn this this uh, series around and um, win it all again. Awesome. All right, final question. For those of you that do not know, Joe is a Bloody Mary connoisseur. He ranks That's Bloody right. Marys at every single place he goes to if they have them. So what city or restaurant has had the best Bloody Mary that you have had? All right. So as a city, I know this is no lie. Uh, what, is, what do the kids say? No cap. No cap. Right. <laughs> uh, El Paso has hands down as an entire area. El Paso has the greatest Bloody Marys I've ever had uh, in, as a whole. Um, Anson 11 uh kind of down by the baseball stadium there downtown Anson 11 has the best in the city um there's a place called what is it um it's like a brunch place out in like the kind of the northwest the grove i think it is mm -hmm. yeah i think it's, yeah. i think it's called grove um they're probably my second favorite there uh and then crave has a decent one but Pretty much anywhere you go in El Paso, they have a really good Bloody Mary. Even the Red Lobster in El Paso, down <laughs> by down by where the facility is, that Red Lobster has. It's like it might be it might be better than Anson. I don't know. It's they're very close. I I put it maybe half a point over over Anson, but um, I had it there one day and I was like, oh my gosh! And then I went to couple of red lobsters other places and i thought it was maybe like a a chain bloody mary and the ones that i had at other places were completely terrible i do have to say the best one i've ever had is not in el paso it's actually in seattle and our head our head throwing guy here in la christian meister basically i i offered him the job of the head throwing guy here because he showed me um, this place in Seattle that ended up being my favorite Bloody Mary of all time. <laughs> so I know, I know he had great instincts. Um, if you know a good Bloody Mary, I mean, we'll offer you a job anytime. <laughs> you know, so well, that's uh, a, that's one way to make an impression. Yeah, go. that place that that place is named. Um, I, 
It's named Dukes. So there's a Dukes in like Malibu that's completely different, but this one is like a seafood mm-hmm. place, and they have like a it's like this weird tilted glass. Um, but that's that's the best that I've that I've ever had. Awesome. All right. Well, Joe, thank you for your time. That is all the questions I have for you. Um, I'm sure right, everyone man. that sees this, they got a lot of insight uh, just from your knowledge, from your experience um, as well. And if you guys are interested in training, remote training, in-house training, anything like that, please reach out to us at Bimo Elite Athletics. I'll make sure to link all the social media stuff here so you can get in touch with us. Uh, do like I said, remote training, in-house training, anything like that. Or you can just shoot us a question on DM. A lot of the times we'll answer those uh, just to help some guys out. But Joe, thank you again for your time. This has been awesome. Yeah, dude. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Always good seeing you. Always good talking to you. Of course.